Hello, I'm Peter Van Dusen, and this is the Primetime Politics Podcast. On Primetime Politics tonight, as more provinces pause or restrict the use of the AstraZeneca vaccine, its future as part of Canada's vaccine arsenal is under serious scrutiny. This expert will weigh in on the latest developments. On a day when this Canadian vaccine maker says he's prepared to take development and production to another country because of his frustrations with the federal government. And the Line 5 standoff, it's deadline day for an order to shut down a crucial pipeline that cuts through Michigan before delivering oil to Quebec and Ontario. MPs will debate the federal government's strategy in fighting to keep the pipeline open. But we begin tonight with the latest key developments on COVID-19 in Canada and the focus on the AstraZeneca vaccine. Its use in Canada is coming under more and more scrutiny because of the growing safety concerns. Six provinces have now stopped giving the AstraZeneca vaccine as a first dose because of the risks of blood clots as a rare but potentially fatal side effect. Today, Newfoundland, Manitoba and Nova Scotia joined Ontario, Saskatchewan and Alberta in restricting the use of AstraZeneca. Today, Manitoba is also adjusting its approach to AstraZeneca uh, or Covishield vaccines in response to ongoing evidence and some supply chain issues. We need to respond to the disruptions in supply so that the many thousands of people who have already had their first dose of AstraZeneca can be confident that we will have a second dose available for them when they get to that point. As a result, the AstraZeneca that is uh, still in the province now and uh, the doses that will be delivered to us in the future will be held for second dose immunizations only. The decision to pause the use of AstraZeneca is based on caution, science, and the availability of alternative mRNA vaccines uh, from Pfizer and Moderna. With a national and global concern around the serious side effect VIT, it is the best solution to move people who were to get AstraZeneca to receive mRNA vaccine instead. As you're aware, we were offering that vaccine to those uh, 55 and over. Um, so at this point now, uh, given that we're able to open up mRNA to those younger than that age group, um, we will not be offering um, AstraZeneca for first doses at this point. Um, certainly we will have, we will still have some doses on hand for people who may not be able to receive an mRNA vaccine um, and uh, or choose not to, but uh, by and large there is, uh, uh, you know, the, the evidence right now supports using an mRNA vaccine in the, uh, the age groups. Well, some 800,000 Ontarians have received at least one dose of the AstraZeneca vaccine. The province has already said it will use remaining doses on hand for second shots only. The province is set to receive 250,000 more doses of AstraZeneca next week. Today, Ontario's health minister was asked how the province will be using those additional AstraZeneca vaccines. Well, for the moment, with the small number of doses that we already have, we're just holding on to them pending the final review by NACI and Health Canada as far as the uh, doses that uh, will be available during the week of the 17th. That is something that no final determination has been made as yet as to uh, whether they will be received in Ontario. So it's all pending the review by NACI and, uh, and Health Canada. 
And what about direction from the federal government on AstraZeneca? The Prime Minister was asked today uh, in question period about that. So the Prime Minister just stood up in the House and said that he would be getting a second dose of AstraZeneca based on his doctor's advice. Based on the experts in Health Canada and NACI that report into him, would he stand by that advice? Honourable Prime Minister. Mr. Speaker, I highlighted that I spoke with my doctor and he said uh, that uh, he is expecting that uh, in the coming weeks, whenever that comes up, I would get uh, a second dose of AstraZeneca. Uh, we will, he will, and others will, of course, be following uh, the updated guidance that I'm sure will continue to evolve uh, from, from uh, recommendations by experts on uh, what the right path forward is. But Canadians need to be reassured that every step of the way, their health and safety is at the forefront of all recommendations and every vaccine distributed in Canada is approved by Health Canada because it's safe and effective. Dr. Isaac Bogosh is an infectious diseases specialist at the University of Toronto. He frequently joins us here at CPAC to provide context for the latest COVID-19 developments. He's doing that again today for us. Uh, thanks for your time again, Dr. Bogosh. Good to see you. My pleasure. Good to see you as well. Look, lots of continuing questions and uh, perhaps some building reluctance to the use now of the AstraZeneca vaccine in Canada. What are your thoughts on whether we should keep using it or not? Well, I mean, in Ontario, for example, they push pause. And I think the messaging really focused around two key points. One is that with Ontario data, the risk of these blood clotting events, while rare, went from about one in 100,000 to about one in 60,000. So it's fair to say that they're still rare, but that is a change and that's, that's an important change. The other important point too, that I think was kind of lost in the mix was supply issues. It's hard to run a vaccine program when you don't have a steady or reliable supply of a particular vaccine. We have a ton of mRNA vaccines coming into the province, namely Pfizer and Moderna. We know that the risk is 0% of this uh, rare blood clotting event with those versus a one in 60,000 risk with a vaccine that we don't really get much of. And when we do get it, it's not quite clear how much we're gonna get or when we're gonna get it. So. I think based on the growing um, volume of a vaccine that doesn't carry that risk, coupled with inconsistent supply, it, it was the right move. And, and I think what we'll see is the AstraZeneca that's left in the province and any more AstraZeneca that comes into the province will be used for second doses. One other thing, yeah. pardon me for belaboring no, this ahead. point, people that got AstraZeneca made the right choice. Like, it's a good vaccine, and I, I really hope people recognize that. I hope there's no buyer's remorse. We hear that term being used. Like, it really provides very good protection against COVID-19 and, of course, against hospitalizations. And there's excellent data demonstrating the effectiveness of a single dose of AstraZeneca. Of course, everybody needs two doses. Those who have had AstraZeneca will be okay. They're either going to get a second dose of AstraZeneca or they're going to get a second dose of an mRNA vaccine, but they will be looked after. Yeah, for sure. well, let, let's go there. Uh, you, you brought it up and, and I was going to bring it up anyway, but I'm, I'm one of those people. So I've had a, a, an initial dose of AstraZeneca. And, um, you know, given everything you hear, a lot of people will be wondering, uh, and I'm not frankly sure where I'm at on all of this yet when I hear all this information. But so what do you do for next time around? Uh, do you do you, if an AstraZeneca shot's available, is that the one you take or should you be waiting to see whether uh, the evidence suggests the uh, the mixing of vaccines uh, is is appropriate, effective, and safe. Yeah, I mean, my wife's in this exact same situation as well. She received a first dose of AstraZeneca. 
Uh, she allowed me to share that information, by the way. <laughs> but uh, but uh, I mean, I think and there's there's you know thousands and thousands of people in this in this setting. Luckily, we have a bit of a gift of time. Like I appreciate that everyone would love to have an answer right now, and and are, and I appreciate that there's anxiety around this, as there should be. We've seen some mixed messaging and and confusing messaging about this. But uh, when we believe it or not, the the best dosing strategy for AstraZeneca is at day one and then at day three months. That provides a pretty significant immune response that's better than a shortened time frame between that. So there's a bit of a gift of time, and that's helpful because, quite frankly, we there's emerging data from the United Kingdom demonstrating a couple of things. One is it appears, I have to be careful with my words, it appears that the risk of having these blood clotting events after a second dose of AstraZeneca is markedly lower than after the first dose of AstraZeneca. Now, some of the numbers from the United Kingdom suggest that it could be as low as one in a million, but I think it's we have to be very careful at looking at those numbers. We have to be critical looking at those numbers. And But it, but it looks like if this process is gonna happen, it's gonna happen after the first dose, not after the second dose. The second bit of data we have to look at is this mixing and matching study coming from the United Kingdom where they're doing just this, first dose of AstraZeneca, second dose of uh, Pfizer vaccine, and vice versa. And uh, some of those results will come out probably in the next day or so. Uh, other results will, uh, from that study will come out in a week or two. So it's it, it, it'll be very, very helpful. But really, I, I've got to be careful here. I don't want to, people should recognize I'm speculating, but I think it's going to be very fair to say that the mixing and matching is going to be fine. You might have some more significant symptoms if you mix and match because people might mount a more robust immune response or maybe for other reasons as well. But I don't think we're going to see any major safety signals or issues with effectiveness with mixing and matching. But that's speculation. Let's have wait for the data, which is coming soon, and the data can help drive our decision as to what the best way to move forward is. Right. You and I have talked about this before, and that's that's around the issues around messaging. I mean, we have these discrepancies, and, uh, and I want to be careful, again, uh, how we describe it. Uh, the evidence presented by Health Canada to date, and it comes in stages. We have to put, you know, the, 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 the information, the science evolves. But, you know, we have Health Canada saying uh, their latest current estimated rate of the, of the blood clot side effect from AstraZeneca is one case per 100,000. The science table in Ontario says now uh, it's closer to one case per 55,000. That's a significant difference. So how are Canadians supposed to, uh, to view that what appears to be conflicting information? Right. I mean, as always, data, especially in the COVID-19 era, uh, the clip of new discovery is moving very quickly. And I think it's very important to obviously communicate this in a meaningful manner in real time so that you can really help enable people to make good decisions for themselves. And, and you know, I, I am a fan of radical transparency. I mean, I think everyone needs to see this information, but of course, it has to be contextualized, right? Mm -hmm. You can't just drop information and walk away. I mean, putting this in the appropriate context is extremely important. Like, obviously, uh, uh, an incidence of one in 60,000 is, is obviously very different than one in 100,000, but it's still a very rare event. Right. Uh, but of course, when we put in the context of having a significant number of other vaccines coming into the country that don't carry that risk, I mean, it just makes sense. You, they both provide excellent protection against COVID-19, and you either have a very, very rare risk of developing a severe outcome or no risk right. of developing that severe outcome. So, I take the no risk, yeah. but that's, that wasn't true, uh, you know, in March, in April, 
and in the early part of May. I mean, it's fair to say that this is a public health emergency by any means. It's not every day you've got adults admitted to your pediatric ICUs. It's not every day you've got tents set up in front of your hospitals where you could put patients in or canceling surgeries across your province because you need an all-hands-on-deck approach. AstraZeneca provides very good protection against COVID-19. I really think those who, who took the vaccine, they, I, I, my my opinion is they did the right, right. thing. It's, it's a good vaccine and it provides protection for you and those just around to, you. Just to summarize here, to finish up, so are, are we at a point, do you believe, where uh, the prevailing advice here should be uh, AstraZeneca in very particular situations uh, or when nothing else is available, but the MNRAs or the, the Pfizer and Moderna are, the, are now the preferred vaccines? And I think that's going to be driven because of supply, supply, supply. And also, you can't ignore the, the real but still very rare side effects. All right, Dr. Isaac Bogach, always great to hear from you, sir. Uh, take care. Uh, we'll talk again. You will. Have a good one. Well, still with vaccines, a Canadian company that is manufacturing its own made-in-Canada COVID-19 vaccine is threatening to move its testing and production operations out of the country if it doesn't get more support from the federal government. Providence Therapeutics, based in Calgary, has released the results of its Phase 1 trials of its COVID-19 vaccine. The data, it's not yet been published or peer-reviewed, and the company says it is committed to Canada, but it's not feeling like the Canadian government is so committed to it. Brad Sorensen is the CEO of Providence Therapeutics. He's with me now. Mr. Sorensen, good to see you again. Uh, thanks for your time. Thank you. Look, the country is, is now focused on the safety of vaccines in a big way here. Lots of scrutiny on the AstraZeneca vaccine. So tell me about the initial trial of your Made in Canada vaccine. What did you find? Yeah, so we found that we have a very uh, safe and very tolerable vaccine. Uh, so the mRNA vaccines have, have, have a great safety profile, great safety record. So what I'm really referring to is the adverse events that are associated with dosing, whether that's local or systemic, uh, you know, high fever, fatigue, uh, uh, redness and swelling. Uh, we had significantly less adverse events than, than our, our peers, Pfizer and Moderna. So right. we're, we, we're very pleased with the results. So to be clear, your, yours is the same, an mRNA vaccine. It's the same as the Pfizer and Moderna, the, the, the similar uh, type of vaccine, right? Yeah, same class of vaccine. Okay, yes. this was a trial of, of 60 participants, as, as I understand it, aged 18 to 64. So uh, what, what did you find in terms of the efficacy of, of the vaccine in, in that first trial, and what's the next step? Right, so the, the immunological response that we received was, was very good. Um, there's, there's two areas that, uh, that we're focused on in the, in the uh, top-line data. Uh, one is the total IgG um, antibodies that are produced, which was very high, uh, and we were very pleased with those results. And then as you drill down, you get to the neutralizing antibodies, and we did exceptionally well. I, that's when they do get to what they refer to as a correlate of protection. Um, we believe that neutralizing antibodies are going to be extremely important in this, and um and when you say uh, compares very favorably, uh, that's scientific speak for, you know, we outperformed. You outperformed who or what? Uh, the, other, the other mRNA vaccines. Okay. Better performance, you're saying, at this point in these initial trials than Pfizer or Moderna? Yes. 
Okay, look, you've expressed frustration in your dealings with the federal government. You and I have talked about this before, but you're at the point now where you're considering uh, moving your phase two trials and production out of Canada. How has it come to that? Well, uh, I mean, we're still we're still being managed by the Canadian government. I don't know if I'd say we're being um, supported. The really, we've we've been very clear. You know, we're not we're not interested in just being sort of strung along through the clinical trial experience. We know we've got a very good vaccine. The data today demonstrated that. Uh, what we want to do is we want to ramp up manufacturing capacity in Canada. And um, and we'd like to be able to engage the government in in securing, you know, future booster doses that are needed by Canadians from a Canadian source. Hmm. And so this is this is kind of where we've been approaching it. Um, you know, we have gotten funding from the Canadian government, um, and we were in discussions just this week with the NRC and in right. you know the National Research Council has been fantastic. Uh, it looks like they're going to support us in our phase two trial. But to, to put it sort of in a in a context, you know, we're talking about getting about another $10 million from the NRC for our phase two trial. That trial is a comparator trial against Pfizer. We've asked two months ago for 500 doses of Pfizer vaccine, and we have not got a response. Initially, they said, go ask Pfizer. We did. Pfizer said no. And we came back to the government. And we need access because that's our positive control. We, we need to have the Pfizer's vaccines to run you, the trial. You need, you need that vaccine to be able to test yours against that vaccine. Simply put, you need it. Okay. Absolutely. All right. Yeah. So as, as you say, the government points out, you, you know, you've, you've got the support. The, it sounds to me like, it sounds to me like you're saying you, when you say you don't want to be sort of managed along, you want to just move more quickly than they're prepared to let you move. Is that it in a nutshell? Uh, that's accurate. Um, but like I said, there's there's certain aspects of this that, you know, we have to submit our phase two tr application next week. We have to have that access to those vaccines in order to make that submission. Um, we've, we've been asking for two months. So, it, you know, again, this isn't a trivial thing. This is this is I know it sounds like, well, 500 doses, it should be straightforward. But for the federal government, it's not. And, and we need an answer on this. And so, you know, when I talk about pulling Providence out of Canada, you know, we're in the middle of a pandemic. We've got the ability to produce 200 million doses a year between Northern RNA and emergent uh, biosolutions out of Winnipeg. And those doses are needed throughout the world. We're not going to, we're not going to, you know, walk away and, and where we could save lives. So we're gonna manufacture those doses we're going to continue with what we've built in Canada. But what I'm saying is that we're going to look at, do we do anything future in Canada? Do we re-domicile the company? And in two years, once the crisis has passed, do we leave that production in Canada? And those are questions that we're, that we're looking at right now. All right. Uh, well, we'll continue to follow your story. Uh, thanks for your time tonight. appreciate it. Thank you. A midnight deadline hangs over the fate of a crucial pipeline that supplies half of the energy to Quebec and Ontario for everything from home heating to jet fuel. The governor of Michigan has ordered Enbridge's Line 5 to cease operations, calling it a ticking time bomb. The pipeline's been in use for almost 70 years with an incident, delivers western oil from Canada through Wisconsin and Michigan before winding its way back into Ontario. 
The federal government has now intervened in the court fight in Michigan, pointing to a 1977 treaty protecting cross-border pipelines and saying the shutdown would hammer the Canadian economy and risk causing lasting damage to Canada-U.S. relations. Well, let's take a closer look at the political response to the Line 5 dispute between the Governor of Michigan and Enbridge and the role of the federal government here in Canada in defending the pipeline. I'm joined by three members of Parliament to debate that response. Mark Serre is an Ontario Liberal MP and the Parliamentary Secretary to the Minister of Natural Resources. Greg McLean is a Calgary Conservative MP and his party's critic for natural resources. And Richard Cannings is a British Columbia New Democrat MP and his party's natural resources critic as well. Good to see you all, gentlemen. Uh, Monsieur Serre, let me start with you. Here we are at the 11th hour looking at the possible shutdown of the Line 5 pipeline, although uh, it doesn't seem that likely to happen today while the two sides are still in mediation. But uh, look, there's no guarantee on how long this pipeline might stay open before the, the governor uh, in Michigan acts. What has your government been doing to try to head off this threat that's been hanging there from the Mich Michigan governor since last fall? Well, thanks, Peter. Uh, our government is very active uh, at all levels. You know, the prime minister has met with um, President Biden. Uh, we've met with the uh, Secretary of State, several cabinet uh, ministers and our uh, governors and in, in, in the U.S. We have the ambassador. We've engaged and also we've submitted the amicus brief to our intentions uh, in the courts um, to invoke uh, the treaty. So we put that in, forward to the courts. So to be clear, you know, we are wanting to make sure both parties sit at the table immediate solution is the best um, but a solution but uh, we know that uh, you know the the workers um, are is very important here the jobs economic benefit we also know that uh, mediation is the best approach so but, so, but i'm wondering you know, whether all does that suggest all of that engagement you say your government's been involved in for several months uh, just hasn't paid off because the, the gov certainly the governor of michigan's not backing down no, it's paid off. We, we've had a lot of. Um, um, I mean, the governor, uh, the governor of Michigan has an agenda, um, and and is continuing uh, with the path that they've been doing. But we've been engaging with many of our U.S. counterparts, both sides of the border. Line five is crucial for workers. It's crucial okay. for the economy. But we've been engaged at all levels, and and we'll do whatever it takes to make sure that line five doesn't close. Mr. McLean, the federal government yesterday, as uh, Mr. Serres pointed out, filed its brief opposing the shutdown, saying it would cause serious damage to the Canadian economy and uh, further would undermine the Canada-U.S. relationship. What more do you believe the federal government should be doing? What more should it have been doing all the way along here is getting involved from day one on this back in November, as we called for. We saw this coming six months ago, and the diddling and dawdling that happened with the federal government pushing the can down the road, kicking the can down the road, so to say, until the 11th hour. Let's, let's not forget the amicus curiae brief that the federal government filed yesterday came in on the very last minute, on the very last day. They're basically saying, okay, you know, everybody else, there's four amicus briefs that had to go from the Canadian side here. Enbridge's side, mm -hmm. and the Canadian government was the last one to file. So it's doing the very least at the very last minute to get involved in this file. We also want the Prime Minister to be directly engaged with the President on this. This should be decided at the state level. Okay. We made that clear from the very beginning. And it depends upon the relationship between two senior statesmen here, supposedly, which would be the leaders of the two countries. They need to get their heads together and actually have this resolved along the Transit Pipeline Treaty, which was supposed to be uh, signed between our two countries to enforce exactly 
yes. this scenario. Uh, so uh, let me, you know, let we're me, asking for a lot of engagement here. Okay, let me come back to that. But Mr. Cannings, let me let me hear from you. Like your two colleagues, the, the NDP supports the continued operation of this Line 5 pipeline. Uh, uh, the party opposes other pipelines, though. Environmental groups and Indigenous groups on both sides of the border support shutting down Line 5. Uh, why does the NDP support the continued operation of this pipeline? Well, this is a totally different pipeline dispute than the others that we've been hearing about, whether it's Trans Mountain Expansion, Keystone XL. Those are expansion pipelines that are predicated on really increasing dramatically the output of the Alberta oil sands. This is a pipeline that's been operating for 68 years. It's bringing Canadian crude oil to Canada, to Eastern Canada, where it creates Canadian jobs, uh, is a feedstock for the Ontario manufacturing sector, uh, the fuel in Ontario and Quebec. So it, this is something, it's about maintaining the status quo for Canada. Uh, as we transition to a low carbon future, we'll be needing some oil and gas over the intervening years. And this is as something that's critical to do that but it's a really a wake-up call when we see you know the governor of michigan president biden both running on election promises to shut down pipelines it, it's a wake-up call that the public just won't isn't willing to shoulder that burden of risk around okay. pipelines and 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 the fossil fuel industry. Let, let's talk about the, uh, you've touched on it, uh, the, the Prime Minister and, and Joe Biden, Mr. Biden has an agenda, uh, the Governor of Michigan has an agenda, but, and we know, Mr. Serre, the, the damages from shutting down this pipeline to Canada, well documented, but Joe Biden's been silent on this, uh, and we know he cancelled the, the Keystone XL pipeline on his first day in office. Uh, he's a close ally of the Michigan Governor. How concerned should Canadians be about whether the U.S. president's really going to be a true friend of Canada when an issue like this comes forward and we're not hearing from him. Well, let's be clear here. This is a, um, a court dispute between Enbridge and the state of Michigan. Um, you know, no court has ordered this pipeline to be shut down. The court, um, you know, is is ordering the parties for mediation. We're continuing that. Uh, it's really unlikely that the uh, you know there'll be any uh, closure tonight uh, at midnight. Mm -hmm. um, so, so really, it's important to be continue that dialogue. But we have put the amicus in the courts. Um, and it's clear, and, and we've done that on, you know, because now we know the other parties' positions. And, and but, we're but would you like to hear support for Canada's, would you like to hear support for Canada's position from the president? Well, I mean, the president has um, um, been, the, the cabinet has been very supportive. Um, and, and like I said, right now, it's dealing with the state court. And, and um, you know, we're supporting President Biden, supporting the workers, supporting labor in Michigan. We're supporting the pipeline on, on both sides of the border. Um, and uh, we got to continue with the mediation uh, in court. Okay, with, uh, Mr. McLean, does this, does this dispute raise, and the way it's, it's unfolding here, red flags for you, uh, raise red flags for you about how the Biden administration views the relationship with Canada? Well, red flags all along, but it, the red flag we have to raise and we have to respond to is how our government is responding to the U.S.'s non-action on this file. This is a treaty between our two countries. A lot has been constructed along the, the basis of this treaty. So we've got a pipeline that's been there since 1953. We've had a treaty there since 1977. Think of all the industry that's been built in Ontario and our manufacturing heartland because of that uh, energy infrastructure that exists. There's all kinds of petrochemicals. It supplies the energy uh, that 
Ontarians need for heating their homes, for fueling their cars, for their jets, for a lot of their farms uh, in Ontario. This is something that is is going to take a huge amount of environmental, uh, you know, at, uh, GHGs to replace and get those same energy inputs to the market. So we're we're pushing and pulling here as far as our objectives go. We need to enforce what we have and make sure we move forward on a very responsible way, both respect right. to our economies right. between our two countries and the environment. Mr. Cannings, let me finish with you. What's what's your view of uh, of you know about how this is unfolding and what it suggests about uh, perhaps what the relationship might be like with the new Biden administration? Not so new anymore now, but with Joe Biden's uh, presidency. Well, let's put it this way: everybody agrees that it would be best to have a negotiated settlement. Uh, you know, through diplomatic means. And to do that, we have to approach it respectfully. We have to understand what the the reasons behind Michigan's actions are. They're concerned about the environment. Uh, it doesn't help in negotiations if Jason Kenney calls the governor of Michigan brain dead before she even starts this dispute. It doesn't help that the Minister of Natural Resources is saying this is non-negotiable. Uh, and then says we have to negotiate. So I think we have to, you know, really understand what the concerns okay. are about Michigan. They've had the disaster at Kalamazoo in Enbridge Line 6B, 2010, destroyed 50 kilometers of that river. All of the indigenous groups in Michigan are against this. So we have to approach it with that in mind. And as I say, this is a wake-up right. call uh, for the future. You know, we are seeing more okay. and more of this, you know, the, the public is just not ready to support okay. these kind of projects right, we'll, we'll have, as we'll, we move into a greener future. We'll have to, we'll have to leave it there. This, the story's not over though, uh, gentlemen, and we'll have a chance to revisit it, I'm sure, uh, as it continues to unfold. But thank you all for your time tonight. I do appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Take care. Mm -hmm. And that is all the time we have for this edition of Primetime Politics. I'm Peter Van Dusen. From all of us here at CPAC, thanks again for watching.